Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burrus. Joining us today is Stephen F. Pitts. He's Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, and he's the author of Recovering the Liberal Spirit, Nietzsche, Individuality, and Spiritual Freedom. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. You mount a novel defense of liberalism against a particular kind of criticism, which at the beginning of the book you characterize like this. Few, including critics of liberalism, doubt the material benefits that the modern liberal world has made possible. Despite these benefits, however, liberalism ultimately leads to the spiritual impoverishment of citizens, or so the story goes. What's this spiritual impoverishment the critics are getting at? Well, I think there's a couple ways to look at that, but I think the, the primary way that I do is that there's a sense, and this is, this is mostly an academic debate, but of course it can you know, get filtered through public discourse as well. There's this idea that in the, in the modern liberal West, human beings or individuals are atomized. They're somehow, uh, you know, they've lost their connection to all sorts of um, communities, traditions, sources of meaning that give them ultimately spiritual fulfillment. So I'm, I'm trying to work against this idea that the, the liberal individual, right, who is, who is in some sense a product of the modern liberal project, which puts the individual at the, uh, the center of political theory and our creation of government, right, the self-governed individual who, who, is, who has rights, and is then able to uh, join in government, uh, in a democratic government, they'll say, okay, that's, that's all worked. And then, and then in some sense, uh, the economic liberties that have come with this and free markets that have raised prosperity, all of this stuff has worked really well. But what's fallen through the cracks is our spiritual life, right? So these sources of meaning, whether it's community, tradition, history, um, a nation even, all of these things have uh, have gone away, and therefore liberal individu- individuals are spiritually impoverished. And I wanted to try to come up with an, a, a way of looking at the so-called atomized individual. I reject that language, but look at the so-called atomized individual and say, you know, is it really is it really the case that they're spiritually impoverished? You say that there's this, this criticism of liberalism along these lines, but Aside from it being a criticism, isn't there like data that shows that this is true, this kind of atomization? I know you don't like the word. Some sort of maybe normlessness. We had starting maybe with bowling alone and a bunch of other works have come out saying that this is actually a problem. Yes, there certainly is uh, data to, to talk about that. And, and I, I mean, in some sense, it's a matter of perspective. But um, I think what I try to focus on is whether – we can find spiritual fullness, as I call it, fullness, fulfillment, I use this interchangeably, without um, attachment to all of these things that, let's say, Bull and Alone would talk, would talk about, which is uh, the social body, the political community, right? He talks about social capital. Those things matter, though, in different ways. So you know, if you look at Bowling Alone, and he talks about social capital, a lot of that is a polity's ability, whether you know it could be at a different level, a local level or a state level, to engage in cooperative projects and to govern itself. I'm looking very much at the individual, him or herself, and say, what does this person need to reach spiritual fulfillment, which I think is a choice-worthy, choice-worthy goal for everyone? And is it the case that 
liberal politics, liberalism in general, precludes or harms the individual's ability to do this. So I kind of think it's a different question. Um, and and there are, there are, I'm sure there's, there's strong evidence to suggest that we actually need more institutions or associations to help us in self-government and to maybe decentralize government, right? To, to actually achieve the, the goal of federalism, that sort of thing. But that's not precisely what I'm asking. I'm asking, is it true that liberalism has just made us sort of detached from all these sources of meaning and, and lost at sea? I mean, Charles Taylor, a communitarian, calls the liberal individual who is, who is atomized pathological, right? That's pretty strong language. And I think it's that question I'm focused on. And I do believe, too, you know, you can look at things happening right now and you can look at uh, the resurgence of, of some sort of nationalism, um, uh, an increase in identity politics is something that people are engaged in. In ways, these are they're people that's potentially individuals trying to fill that void um, in a way that, in my mind, is both illiberal and in the long run, ultimately harmful. And, and it's a bad bad path to go on. But in any case, I'll end it there, but just say I think it's slightly different questions that uh, that I'm asking versus someone like Robert Putnam and Bowling alone. You've hinted a bit at this in your answer to the first question, but because the term is going to get used a lot in our conversation, can you clarify or just nail down exactly what you mean by spiritual? Sure. Well, so on the one hand, I mean spiritual to be inclusive, right? Um, I'm trying to use it in a way that's fairly non-denominational. Um, I, I start out the book and actually spend a lot of time defining spiritual fullness in the introduction. And I try to use uh, thinkers who have talked about this sort of idea that are both theistic and atheistic. So, for example, I look at St. Ignatius of Loyola, who talks about spiritual desolation versus spiritual consolation. Consolation, of course, being fullness, desolation being emptiness. And, and it's just really it's this idea that you, you can be um, attached to some source of meaning that gives your life a spiritual content that keeps you more or less satisfied, right? And not satisfied simply in the physical sense, but a life in which, while of course it's going to be punctuated by highs and lows, there's a richness or a fullness, and there's a general sense that you're grateful for your life, you're grateful for, for uh, what happens to you on a daily, weekly, monthly basis, and you'll certainly take the bad with the good. Um, and Charles Taylor, I also use him, you know, he's a modern day contemporary communitarian. He talks about spiritual fullness as this sort of orientation for individuals. Um, but so that's that it's meant to be inclusive. You know, in the St. Ignatius example, his spiritual fullness comes with connection to God. And I don't want to rule that out. Many people would probably talk about their spiritual fulfillment in terms of their relationship to God. I also use Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and he talks about a sentiment of existence and really this, this sense of gratitude and wonder at simply being alive in the world. For Rousseau, it was very important to sort of peel off the, lever, uh, the layers of social, socialization to get to a very, very raw and authentic sort of connection to the universe and to the world. That's another way. That's another way that someone might experience spiritual fullness. I mean it to be inclusive, but the important thing is, is that you're reaching some sort of spiritual state that's satisfactory and, and that it, uh, it's not ephemeral. It lasts, right? So it's not hedonistic, in, in other words. 
it seems that if liberalism produces wealth, which I which I think that we probably agree it does if properly instantiated, then there are things sort of inherent to liberalism that will pull people apart. For example, just to use one that is literally true, uh, the ability to move across borders or within your borders becomes a lot easier when you're more wealthy. And so you have, as opposed to having communities, say, in 1550, where it's not easy to move. And so you develop communities that have longstanding commitments to each other, familial commitments to each other, accents, different types of traditions because of that movement. Now you can live in a world, say in America, where my grandma was born in North Carolina, my parents are born in Oklahoma, and I was born in Colorado, and I live in Washington, D.C. now. All those things would seem to be sort of pulling apart people to some extent, but they are a consequence of at least the wealth and freedoms that liberalism brings. Yes, I would definitely not disagree with that uh, with that general view. Um, in fact, anecdotally, my own family, I came from a large family, I'm one of five children, and uh, we all live in different parts of the country, Seattle, uh, D.C., Tampa, Florida, Colorado. And now, especially that we have children, you realize how, how important it actually is to be closer together and, and being far apart does tear the fabric of the family in a very, very real way. Um, so I, I actually don't uh, disagree with that. I whether that's the liberalism I'm talking about, you know, if you're talking about liberal economics and free market economics, I don't talk about that much in the book. So I'm focusing more on liberal political institutions, um, which, you know, do in a sense align or are com quite compatible with, with free markets and mobility. Um, but I'm more focused on things like freedom of expression, tolerance, freedom of speech, uh, et cetera. Those sorts of liberal institutions are what I talk more about in the book. Well, on that point, so I mean, if we're talking about freedom of expression, uh, for say trying to keep some communities together via a shared belief structure and say a church structure, then possibly the use of blasphemy laws and not allowing people to speak against the church or to con contradict the dogma of the church is beneficial to the church uh, in that way, and therefore beneficial to the church as an in, in, as a community institution. So if we're talking about more civil rights kind of liberalism, I mean, is that – do you think that's – well, maybe this is the way of putting it. That kind of concern that you articulated in the first question where you said that people who believe that liberalism kind of atomizes people and, and to some extent pulls them apart of community structures, well, one of those things could be free speech, that it, it doesn't – it actually pulls people apart and creates, say, a dynamic system where you can challenge authority and you can challenge the existence or the – the, the beneficialness of something like the church. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And so, I mean, my, my view in the book and the, the concept of the free spirit as well, um, you know, coming from that standpoint would be that uh, any sort of coerced coherence, right. Or coerced um, attachment to orthodoxy isn't worth very much to begin with. So um, I, I don't think liberal institutions necessarily force people to, you know, detach, let's say, from their church, because you still have freedom of association. You still have, can very easily be a voluntary member of the church, and you can be as doctrinaire as you would like to be. Um, so I think that, that liberalism can accommodate uh, that sort of, that sort of way of being. But I also think it, it, in my book, The Free-Spirited Ideal, it's generally anti-dogmatic, right? So it's skeptical. It's skeptical in a, in a more ancient sense of skepticism, which we may or may not talk about in this podcast, but it's anti-dogmatic 
and in general, the free-spirited individual will not be um, just sort of uh, adopting authoritative or dogmatic claims without a lot of independent verification, you might say, or independent pursuit of, of if not truth, at least intellectual and spiritual honesty. And that, that then, you know, there, there, there is a chance that you go through a very free-spirited pursuit of your own values and beliefs and desires. And those happen to align incredibly well with the Baptist church down the road. It's possible, uh, but it's unlikely. Well, maybe let's then turn to the free spirit and that sort of spiritual freedom, because your argument is essentially that liberalism is good in part because it enables such people to exist and thrive. So what what is a free spirit in this context? Yeah, that, thanks. That's a, a good way to set it up, I think. And um, I'll say a few things about the free spirit, and I'll, then I'll say what the characteristics are. First, it's, it's aspirational. The free spirit is an ideal, something we aspire to without ever fully achieving or finally realizing. So it's a sort of pursuit. Second, it's a relative concept, right? So you're more or less free-spirited than somebody else, and you're more or less free-spirited at different times, simply because that's that's just the nature of, of human cognition and, and, uh, and human consciousness, I believe. So what I mean by relative concept, it doesn't make sense to call the Robin Crusoe deserted on a desert island a free-spirit, even though all Robin Crusoe would be doing, but then let's imagine Robin Crusoe without a family entirely, um, all they would be doing is independent thinking and independent living. But it's still not free-spirited because there's nothing else to be done. I'm talking about it in terms of you're free-spirited relative to others, um, meaning you are more or less detached to conventional norms, contemporary ways of thinking, um, and that's very important. Then the, in terms of the actual characteristics of a free-spirit, first, they're skeptical. Right? They're skeptical, and I, and I mentioned before, um, it's a particular type of skepticism that the free spirit uh, adopts or practices, rather. And I don't want to go too far into it because it might be a rabbit hole, but there's a di distinction between the sort of modern, sort of Cartesian idea of skepticism, which for short means we can really doubt everything. I can doubt that I'm actually speaking into a computer right now. I can doubt that you exist. I can doubt, can doubt that the table exists. It's not that kind of skepticism we're thinking about. But the, there's an ancient Pyrrhonist skepticism where what they really, the Pyrrhonists were really, um, in a sense, they weren't contrarians. They were, they were skeptics that uh, challenged the dogma of the times. So they were more anti-dogmatic than they were skeptical in the sort of modern sense, meaning they, they didn't have cause to, um, you know, doubt many simple truths about what's going to happen if I throw a ball, is it going to go forward? Or is it going to is it going to go backward? Um, they just thought that the dogmatic claims, dogmatic claims of science, religion, um, philosophy of the time needed to be challenged. That was the sort of skepticism they chose to practice, and that's the sort of skepticism of the free spirit. And then, as I mentioned before, the free spirit will be detached from contemporary and conventional norms, but not because they simply want to set themselves up in opposition to society. Um, there's no resentment or rebellion. It's not, a, it's not a teenage angst sort of idea here. They're actually detached from contemporary and conventional norms because they are filled, in a sense, 
with independent drive, a sense of meaning, and a sense also a, a cheerful temperament, as Nietzsche will talk about, a temperament that that is conducive towards independent discovery and and really um, independent living and solitude, not as a means of escaping the world so much as it is to pursue one's own uh, spiritual goals. So therefore, the actual um, detachment is 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 elevated. What what Nietzsche says a free, fearless hovering over convention. And this is this is something that the free spirit does in order to become spiritually fulfilled. And it actually is the path to that fulfillment. The final thing I'll add to this to that, which is a little bit more optional, but in the place of all those conventional traditional norms and associations that most people will likely go to for their spiritual fulfillment, uh, the the free spirit can choose aesthetic experience and aesthetic appreciation. This is a means of feeling uh, uh, to spiritual fulfillment and uh, it fills the void of meaning that's created by detaching from all those other things. I believe all three of us have at one time attended school in Boulder, Colorado. And so all three of us are quite familiar with hippies. And are you describing hippies here? Like is a free spirit someone who, among all these other things, is just someone who's incapable of living in the real world or at least like incapable of holding a job? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, but in, in fact, it's actually closer to the opposite. Um, and I do speak about this in the, in the first part of the book that the sort of modern day understanding of free spirit is a bit of a hackneyed term. And we get it mostly from Hollywood, right? Also just the vernacular, but, you know, probably some other cultural mediums as well. But I'd say primarily Hollywood. And it's this, this idea of the sort of overworked, um, overstressed middle class person who, you know, it, you can think of the, world, uh, the, the movie Office Space, for example. And they just say, you know what, I'm going to go get away from all this, this crap that I don't want to do. And um, they generally are mystical about it, right? There's, they, maybe they're reading tarot cards or doing astrology. Um, but they're definitely, you know, going out, having a good time and leaving the stresses of life. And there's actually maybe there's there's something to that. I'm not going to I'm not going to say that that's completely foreign to this idea of the free spirit that I brought up. But the one very key difference is that that's an escapist attitude that says, you know, we're not going to work a real job. I'm not going to do with deal with reality as it's given to me. And um, but then there's there's no real uh, there's no real substitute put in its place, right? The modern day hippie or the, the Hollywood hippie just goes and blows off steam and has a good time. Whereas the free spirit, and this follows Nietzsche's version of the free spirit, is um, is interested precisely in ridding themselves of illusions, right? Avoiding the common pitfalls of escapism. And of course, for Nietzsche, those, 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 those pitfalls of escapism come in a lot of these places we talked about, in religion, in tradition, in even in just public opinion and and trends and fads and the need to to talk and act in a certain way, um, these are all escapist uh, phenomena, you might say, in the Nietzschean sense. And the, the Nietzschean free spirit and the one that I talk about wants to rid him or herself of this and be free of illusions about the world, and also be able to f- face reality as it is without falling into despair. Um, I, I want to you know, save your listeners from a big, long explanation of this. But 
Nietzsche, uh, you know, writes a lot about what the truth of reality is. And, it's, and frankly, he says in, in so many words, he says the truth is terrible. Um, this comes from the whole Schopenhauer uh, influence that he has. And it's actually not as bleak as, as, as it sounds when I just say the truth is terrible, but it's a fact that we are here. We know we will die. We're not exactly sure what we're supposed to do while we're here. We can't actually have complete and solid faith in the knowledge that we do have. Um, there's all sorts of, we, we fall prey to illogic and injustice, uh, you know, routinely. And the free spirit is able to face these truths and still, in a way, um, surpass them. Uh, I, I, I hesitate to, to use the word transcend them, but I think it, it, it's fairly descriptive. You can get above these um, even while accepting them. It's interesting because the, the way you describe – I had the same question in my head as Aaron about hippies. Um, also, you know, having spent time in Boulder and, and and around a lot of musicians and stuff, but the but you said in your answer your answer about your first answer about free spirits that it's not sort of simply rebellion for it's not the sort of wild one like what are you rebelling against what do you got and maybe that's what you know Ken Kesey and Timothy Leary and and hippies are often doing so is it, is it mean that the free spirit in some sense do they have to stand for something or do they, or do they just have to like peer through illusions. I don't know if I, that makes sense. It sounds like kind of, so they have to yeah, be positive in there as opposed to just reactively negative in how they are sort of going against the trends. Yeah. Okay. Not not to not to split too many hairs, but I would say yes. There's a positive orientation, but you do not have to stand for something, right? That's actually something that we never force a free spirit to do. There's there's no need to let's say okay here's some of the most burning political and cultural issues today, and you need to need to take a stand on them. Um, it, but to go back to your question about, about hippies, which I think is a, a very good one, it's not rebellious and it's not resentful. Um, for anyone who's read Nietzsche out there, you'll know that resentment, when he uses the French, but it's really resentment, is what he believes uh, drives a lot of cultural shifts and change. And it's the sort of, for for I'll, I'll oversimplify a little bit. It's the sort of resentful class that tries to overthrow the the so-called uh, oppressive class, and that's sort of the nature of politics in a, in a big way. And and the free spirit is not driven by resentment of you know who's in power and what's in fashion. Though the reason that they are detaching is precisely because they're full or pregnant of meaning and and um, uh, interest and wonder about the world. But they're also very independent-minded, right? And they they want to see things the same in their own way. It's not as if um, they just they want to reject everything they they've been taught um, or everything they encounter. But they actually have a pretty strong sense of self and a strong temperament, and they also want to figure things out for themselves. And that just naturally brings them into conflict, which with a lot of you know conventional norms and orthodoxy of all sorts. Uh, it's it's just that's just the way it's that's just a fact, right? If, if the more independent minded you minded you are, the more likely you are to be at odds with some of the stuff that's happening around you. Um, I think that's I think that's pretty pretty clear. Or Nisha certainly thought that was clear as well. Um, and then that positive orientation I was talking about is there is a space that opens up when you do take leave of let's say the things, whether it's religion or popular culture. These different ways that people are telling you, yeah, here's the stuff of life. Here's the stuff that's going to make you spiritually fulfilled. 
and you say, no, that just doesn't seem right. It's not working for me. When you do do that, it opens up a space for other ways of, of pursuing meaning and spiritual fulfillment. And in that positive orientation, I find in this idea of aesthetic experience. And uh, I actually, in, in another book, I'm going to talk about the experience of wonder. But that's something that I think the spirit, the, the positive orientation for the free spirit um, that that I was mentioning. You mentioned Hollywood hippies. And, and I think that if listeners, if you're like me, uh, you're listening to, to what Stephen is saying about the free spirit and thinking about how there seem to be a lot of movie characters who might sometimes satisfy this, but at least on a broader level, you it seems that especially American media kind of pushes the free spirit a lot as a heroic character uh, and is trying to sell us in a sense on the values of being a free spirit or finding a free spirit. I'm thinking in particular of the manic pixie dream girl, uh, but I'm thinking of a lot of different things where they say you need to be an individual, but then you get a counter criticism to this that says, you know, trying to sell you on being a free spirit individual from the Walt Disney corporation might be a little bit, um, uh, oppressive in its own way. It might be its, its own sort of sort of, uh, false message because of, because of the source. Yeah, I agree. I think I agree with that. Um, I wasn't. I'm not familiar with the the reference you made earlier, but the manic, uh, manic pixie dream girl. It's it's the character in a movie, usually some guy who's kind of withdrawn and sullen meets some girl who's free <laughs> and open, and like she shows mm-hmm. him how to be a. The classic example <laughs> is, is Gar, Garden State. Uh, was the, is like the original one, but it's like it's like a trope. So they meet yeah. a free spirit, and he and he she breaks him out of her his shell. Is the right. story. Right. Yeah. So no, I, I'm very familiar with that trope. Yes. Um, I think what what you'll get a sense from reading the book, and especially from Nietzsche himself, um, to bring it back to him a little bit. And he's a severe and serious thinker. Uh, his free spirit is also a sort of severe and serious thinker, um, which doesn't mean they're not that the free spirit isn't open to more lighthearted moments. But I think that the sort of Hollywood version of the hippie or the free spirit. It's sort of this be so open-minded um, that there's there's no evaluation, thought, or judgment even occurring, right? And uh, it's this it's this idea that you know all of your problems are because you've just been too closed and too insular, and you're not you're not just opening yourself up to everything that's out there. And that's not really uh, the picture that that I paint in in the book, um, and that that becomes clear very early on in it. But it's it's something where um, uh, well, I'm not trying to think where where to go with this, but it's something where the free spirit is, generally speaking, going to be a serious-minded person who finds their uh, their way of thinking and their way of being, you know, just hard hard to completely measure, finesse, and jive with with maybe what what's uh, expected of them by society. But I'm also not trying to paint these people as uh, as totally um, out there without any associations or any friends or anything like that. So that's, that's another thing that comes in later on in the book. If the free spirit is playing a central role in this particular defense of liberalism that you're setting out, what is the value of the free spirit? So I can see being – like if you're the kind of person who wants to be a free spirit, living in a system that enables you to do that and supports you in doing that is good. But what you're describing doesn't sound like the kind of life that 
a lot of people want to lead. And it also sounds like the kind of life that a lot of people, even in liberal societies, would find, you know, threatening or if not threatening, maybe just irritating. But they, I could see a lot of Americans saying, you're not convincing me because if what you're telling me is liberalism allows people to do this, then maybe that's a knock against liberalism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, fair enough. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd like to think in the book, this comes out more fully so you can get a better sense of the free spirit than maybe I've been able to give just in the last few minutes. But that's a certainly a fair criticism. A couple things I might say to that in terms of the benefits of the free spirit. Um, let's say to a, people on a personal level, I, I mentioned at the very you know, beginning and throughout that free, spiritual freedom is an ideal, it's aspirational, and it admits of degrees, right? So there's, there are degrees of spiritual freedom. Now, I don't think anyone would argue that, let's say you have a continuum of, of spiritual freedom, and on the far extreme, you have you know, the most open, free person ever, and on the other extreme, you have someone who's more or less a prisoner of other people's uh, actions and thoughts, right? They don't. They they simply adopt everything they hear, and um, you know they stick to the orthodoxy, and they don't question anything. I don't think anybody sees that as an ideal. I don't think anybody actually wants that, and which doesn't mean that sometimes obedience isn't important. Uh, but I don't think anybody sees that as an ideal. So you have this continuum, and I'm, and I'm putting free free-spiritedness up as an ideal, and I do think many people would aspire to have some degree of it. And and as I said, it admits of degrees. And then there's two other things I want to mention. So the benefits of the free spirit. So there's, there's a practical argument here, and there's a theoretical argument. So the practical argument is, for liberal societies, I think free spirits provide two very important benefits. The first is just a general loosening of the knot of ideology, right? The, uh, the ability of certain citizens to, to be curmudgeons, right, to be contrarians, and to really push against what can be, you know, sort of mass, you know, in the worst sense, it can be mass psychosis. But this mentality that we get when there's a strong movement occurring, I think we've all seen these throughout our lives, and people are sort of joining on in lock, stock, and barrel. It's really important to have that person, whether it's in your peer group, whether it's uh, in media you consume, that is questioning this stuff and it and can loosen the knot of ideology. And then on a, uh, a similar note, I talk about this a lot, you know, both John Stuart Mill and Tocqueville, Alexis de Tocqueville, were very concerned with the power of public opinion in liberal democracies. So there's this idea that liberal institutions with their, their guaranteed rights, rights of expression, rights of, rights of speech, rights of assembly, they grant us these freedoms. Um, you know, to, to be a certain way and to be whatever way we want to be and then and to even broadcast that. However, it's a mistake to look at liberal societies and say, oh, great, with well, an individual, they're just more free there. Because public opinion or what Mill calls collective opinion is so strong that can actually be more damaging to an individual's spiritual life or individual's, um, uh, individual's freedom than authoritarian institutions sometimes can be. And I think that free spirits are especially important here. Um, I talk in the book about how it's important to have people who not only are willing to um, express contrary opinions, but also able to demonstrate, demonstrate being the key word, demonstrate different ways of life and different ways of being, uh, because it can be powerful. You know, think about 
just being a, a, a student growing up and maybe for some reason, not even sure why, but one of your teachers or one of the people, one of your people who are mentors in some sense, they're just different. They seem really authentic. They seem to be acting in a way that makes you think, oh, may, maybe maybe there are more possibilities for how I should think about my morals or or my my direction in life or, or what I should be doing at any given time. So I think that practical demonstration is a powerful check on, on ideology and public opinion. And I know I'm getting long here, but there's also the theoretical benefit, which maybe we can talk about more. Like in, in the academic literature, the critique of individual autonomy, right? That, that liberalism rests, especially classical liberalism, rests on this idea of individual autonomy, that we can be autonomous as individuals and therefore we can consent to government, right? We can legitimate government through our consent. We can also self-govern, right? We can actually practice that later on um, and that this is necessary for liberal government. And those, so, you know, communitarians and progressives who attack the very idea of individual autonomy, that's a problem for liberalism as, as a political theory. And I also try to take on their critiques on the basis of the free spirit, saying this is a person who, who is practicing autonomy. We can see it. It's real. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's real. And, um, and it bolsters the case for individual autonomy, which is ultimately the bedrock of liberal political theory. It seems like that, I mean, some free spirits can be damaging to a liberal society, uh, even in the end. I mean, I don't know if we would say that, uh, you know, in the beginning, you know, Hitler would qualify as a free spirit, as someone or some or some other sort of revolutionaries, Che Guevara or someone who came up and tried to go their own way and revolutionize the society and then did. Or if we think of someone like Jim Jones um, and cult leaders who also do that too, which I think if you look at illiberal societies, that's some of their fear because you get both sides of this coin. Take China, for example. Uh, China does not want free spirits. It actively works to undermine them, I would say, and make sure they, or they don't come out uh, and undercut their their order. But that's a, that's certainly possible that free spirits can undercut that order that could be beneficial to society as a whole. Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, and, you know, to maybe to rephrase that question a little bit, it's just the question, what about bad free spirits? Right? What about Jim Jones? What about uh, Ted Kaczynski? Right? These people are clearly uh, different. You know, they're independent thinkers. They had very, very strong ideas about what they were doing and they were willing to buck the norm. Uh, they were also, of course, charismatic. Um, and and that's that's a very real issue. But I try to couch that in the tradition of liberalism. So there's two things I would say about it. Number one, right, and if you think about John Stuart Mill and the harm principle, the basic liberal idea, and then we have institutions that are built around this, but the basic liberal idea that you can be free to do whatever you're going to do as long as it doesn't interfere or threaten my freedom to do the same, right? And, and then the harm principle, you can't, you know, you can't punch me just because that's what you feel like you want to do and you want to have the freedom to do it because then that affects my own. So I think just in a you know, your typical liberal society with liberal institutions, the harm principle still, um, and you know, of course, the legal system and, and the police force and everything that, that, under, uh, that, that enforces this, this can deal with the bad free spirits. I mean, the bad, the bad free spirits are gonna come up, but we're gonna deal with them as the way, in the same way we would deal with criminals or any criminal. And so 
you're right that there is this this uh, this sense where this could go either way. Um, but I'd say we have the apparatus necessary to deal with the bad free spirits. But it's also in my interest, and I do throughout the book, I try to promote this positive version of free spiritedness and of spiritual freedom. You know, and I and I, I do it in many ways. It's both, um, you know, being skeptical, being a check on the power, power of public opinion, pursuing your own goals. Also, this positive orientation of aesthetic experience and aesthetic appreciation as well. So I'm focusing on the positive and saying that the liberal political order, because remember, this is part of it, partly a uh, defense of liberalism, is already set up to deal with the bad cases. If liberalism supports free spirits, it would seem then that free spirits ought to support liberalism. But if I if I imagine you know, the kinds of people who I think a lot of us would think of when we hear the way that you're describing free spirits, it feels like a lot of them are on the political left, if not the political very far left, who you know, to the point where like the illiberal left. Um, uh, certainly in terms of economics, but also you know, increasingly in terms of turning against free speech in you know in the service of preventing quote unquote harmful speech and so on um, is there a tension there like why or or are those kinds of people am i misreading what the free spirit is maybe i'm not sure um i was with you at the start when you said well it seems like a lot of these people would be on the left which i would say maybe maybe not Nietzsche himself, uh, you know, is on the right. He actually goes the opposite way, but he turns illiberal. Nietzsche turns illiberal later on. Uh, in fact, after he writes about the free spirit, which is in his sort of middle period, and he writes a ton about the free spirit in three books, then he turns to his later writings, which people know more about, right, where you, where you have the ubermensch, the Superman, and all that stuff, right? So he turns uh, illiberal. Um but when you then, but when you talk about going to the far left, that the sort of illiberal left, I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe you could, maybe you could elaborate there. What you're, what you're thinking? I guess I'm thinking that the kind of people who we tend to see talking about spiritual and aesthetic experiences. Let's limit it to the United States. Um, the kind of people who we tend to think of as spiritual leaders. Um, the ones who are active in counterculture movements. Um, my my general sense, and maybe I'm simply mistaken about this, is that they tend to be much more left than they are right or libertarian. Um, that that certainly, you know, I know we're not talking about hippies, but like the kind of counterculture that hippies were a part of gave rise to the modern left among the boomers and then on into today, um, that there seems to be like a real embrace of, you know, they're the people wearing the Che Guevara t-shirts and so on. Um, and so so there seems to be this like spiritual freedom means fighting back against the man. And the man is, you know, the the corporations, it's the traditions, it's the so on. And the way that you do that is by, you know, Empowering the government to push back on this stuff, or maybe maybe the man is the liberal order, in the small L sense. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. So I'm going to try to answer this in the way that I'm thinking about, it, and you guys can just let me know if 
you're satisfied with it. Um, but I think in general, I would I wouldn't put those people in the free spirited camp, and I would say that they're mostly uh, you know a little misguided and a little confused uh, about what they're doing um, if they think they're acting in a free spirited manner. But one thing that this book is about is that these people are going to exist, and in fact, because I say it admits of degrees, I think there's almost anyone who's a thinking person probably has some decent uh, qualms, like some some fairly significant qualms about about society and social forces that are that are bear, bearing down upon them at different times in their lives, right? Like there's going to be some tension and some conflict there. Um, and then you know the free spirit is going to be the type that is more in conflict and more willing to push against those who are actually not necessarily just push against, but detach. But this idea of detachment is is critical here, I think, because I understand what you're saying about the free-spirited independent sort of pioneer who then all of a sudden has a social following and is now a social disruptor, right? Potentially the, the, you know, the leader of a resistance movement of some sort. This is actually precisely what, um, what I'm trying to argue against, that the free-spirit should be able to detach themselves from these worldly, worldly concerns. And liberalism allows them to do it to the extent that they don't need to try to overthrow the order. That's the goal, is not to have to need to do that. Be able to live this independent life without a need to actually overturn what's happening before, so or what's, what's happening around you. And I think that's very important. Uh, one other tidbit I might mention, it's been a long time since I've read this book, like well over 10 years, but Colin Wilson is the author. I think it was something like The Outsider, um, I think is the book's name. But the idea is this, let's say you're a Jesus or a Socrates, or a, a, I don't know, a Beethoven. Pick, pick some kind of great person in history that clearly was independent, clearly was uh, exceptional in many ways. He's, his point was you have two options if you're exceptional. You can try to um, retreat into your private life and actually work on your inner life. And I talk a lot in the book about your inner life. Or you need to try to overthrow the social order to somehow align better with your own preferences. Um, so, and, and I'm very much on the liberal former side, which is, I think the liberal view of this is, you live in a society that's open and free enough that you can, you can work out these spiritual uh, things in the private world, and you don't have to resort to trying to overturn the public world, you know, or make a big splash in it to come, you know, for it to align more with, with what you're, you know, with your way of being. Does that detachment of the free spirit end up potentially being self-defeating when it comes to liberalism? So if you your your free spirit liberalism is supporting you, but there are counter-liberal forces in society, so people who don't like free spirits or have other objections against it, and the free spirit is then someone who detaches from politics, which you speak about repeating the book as one of the good things about them. But doesn't that detachment then essentially cede the political sphere to the non-free spirits, to the people who have less of a desire for the liberal institutions that the free spirit benefits from? Perhaps, perhaps. And I don't have a very optimistic answer for this because I think that may be true, but I also think that it's uh, it's realistic and, and inevitable. I think, and I would follow maybe something like John Stuart Mill here, which is this idea that freedom and power rarely are aligned in history, right? There's, 
generally a big tension between those who have power and those who want freedom, or just in general, the two concepts of freedom and power. And, and power keeps down freedom for much of history. If you look throughout most of, most of history, power has kept down freedom in different ways. If you're a liberal and you care about freedom, sometimes I think social forces are just too strong. But I would at least say, if you're a free spirit today and you're worried about, let's say, um, you know, non-free spirits who are running politics, maybe on both sides of the aisle, <clears throat> illiberal forces on both sides of the aisle, which seems to be more and more what we have now in the United States. It's an unsatisfactory answer, but maybe the best thing you can do is retain the tradition, maintain your own spiritual force and spiritual, free, spiritual independence by not engaging. And if you see in the book, I, this is a big part of what I write about with Henry David Thoreau, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Herman Hesse, Goethe, all of these people were surrounded with political conditions that they were asking them, they were prodding them, that were pushing them towards engaging more intensely in politics. And they all knew there was a huge price to pay to do it uh, if they did do that, which means their inner life and their spiritual freedom would be harmed, if not eliminated. And as a more general rule of, you know, a, a painting with a, a broader brush, I guess I would say, liberals today, maybe it's a time to sit on the sidelines a little bit. Maybe it's a time to seed that political space. Make sure that you can um, be as persuasive as possible when conditions change to come back in and say this liberal project never died and it's and its promise was always there and its promise continues in the future you know etc cetera, etc cetera. but i think there's going to be times when you when when liberalism and in particular free spiritedness are just no match for the social forces that are out there one of the consequences of the Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening in the United States is, has been observed when you have the liberal principle of no state involvement with religion, no established church, free exercise of religion, you create something like a free market in religion, and therefore you get this bubbling up of religious so to speak, entrepreneurs, so to speak, uh, providing different spiritual services to different people um, and no overarching religion that everyone has to be a part of. And so as people have argued, which I think correctly, this means that you had greater religious fervor in the United States because they were not offering a one-size-fits-all religion solution. It kind of sounds like in some sense, this is a similar to your argument about the free spirit even outside of the religious context that liberalism creates. Essentially, if you do it correctly, it creates a burgeoning free market of people and ideas and people who come up with new ways of being and new ways of thinking. And that overall is beneficial to the human well-being. Um, is that an accurate character characterization, you think, of, of your thesis? Yeah, I, I do think so. I do think so. And that's also a pretty accurate uh, characterization of Mill's position as well. Um, about energetic and strong individuals and the need to have, you know, more uh, for, to, to get to truth and to get freedom just to have more experiments in living, more people doing different things, more voices out there. Um, yeah, so I think that's a, a very fair characterization, yes. And so in that in that regard, if you look at the world today and say, all right, we have free spirits, everyone doesn't have to be a free spirit, um, but you should support the ability of other people to be free spirits and not 
override their preferences and choices by pursuing illiberalism is, I guess, maybe the moral of the story? Certainly one of the morals of the story. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I mean, my one thing that I do towards the end of the book is talk about liberalism as being able, and this is against the progressives and communitarians who want to tell us that all of our meaning and all of our spiritual life should happen in the community and in public, in a sense. Um, I, you know, I'm saying, look, you know, liberalism and freedom of association can accommodate those who would like to join groups of any sort to pursue this to pursue their spiritual goals but liberalism can also accommodate this free-spirited individual as well and i think that's its great strength um and uh yeah so i, I think that that pretty much answers for goes along with what you're, what you're saying um and that's a very very important uh, takeaway from the from the book Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.